Well, there's a pretty scary story in the book of Leviticus. Anybody familiar with Nadab and Abihu? You know, weird names. But what they did was they walked into the tabernacle when they weren't supposed to walk into the tabernacle, and they offered sacrifices or fire as it was to God when he told them no such thing. And for that, they were instantly struck down dead, just like that. They didn't worship God in the manner in which he required, and for that, they both, both lost of their lives. Okay, then. I mean, sure glad God's not like that anymore. Or is he? Is, is God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Does God still strike us dead? Does God still require us to worship him in a certain way? But, but, but hold on there. I mean, we're, we're, we're new covenant here. New covenant applies like Jesus came. We don't have the physical presence of, the, the, of God in a tabernacle or in the temple or Jerusalem. We don't have sacrifices or high priests. We have God, the Holy Spirit, living within us, each and every believer through faith in God the Son. We have the Lord's Day to come and worship together like we're doing right now. So does God still have ways in which he requires us to worship him? And the answer is yes. And how? We're going to see that hopefully today. The first commandment dealt with the object of our worship. The second commandment deals with the manner of our worship. And so if you're in Exodus chapter 20, last week we looked at the first commandment, simply stated, you shall have no other gods before me. Not that there are any other gods, but it's forbidden to give our worship, our honor, our devotion, our service to anyone or anything other than the one true God. We are commanded to worship only the one true God, and we're commanded to worship him by having him as the highest priority of our lives. That means we don't worship idols, which our heart constantly creates, right? Our heart makes idols of many things, some of them good things like family and religion and comfort and ambition. But worship boils down to love. And we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how do we love God? We love God when we worship him exclusively and when we worship him primarily. But what about the manner of our worship? Meaning, how does God require us to worship him? Can we just worship him any old way that we want to? Nadab and Abihu would tell you a big fat no to that. I've been bringing us back to the, the classic reform threefold division of the law. The moral law, what we're looking at here in the Ten Commandments. The civil law, which was for the government of Israel, which we see some overlap in general equity today. And the ceremonial law. That's where God has prescribed in excruciating detail how he requires Israel to worship him. What to wear, what to eat what to sacrifice when, what the temple should look like, what colors to put on the walls, the color of the carpet, all of that. But the ceremonial law is no longer binding on us in that way because Jesus has come. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. He's our once-for-all sacrifice, as John prayed. He's our perfect high priest. He's our perfect temple. So what about us in 2023 America then? Does the second commandment still apply? Yes, it does. In many of the same ways. The specifics are different, but the principle remains. 
Do not make idols and do not worship idols. We don't worship God in a temple with sacrifices and food laws. Now we worship God through Jesus Christ. Or as one author put it, we worship the exact image of God in Jesus Christ. There's only one perfect image of God, and that's Jesus Christ or God himself. Any attempts to make a way to picture this perfectly holy God puts us in sin. Let's look again at the words of the Lord in Exodus 20, starting at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's unpack this together. First, some very familiar language. The same grammatical structure in the Hebrew. You, singular, talking to you, an individual. You shall not, here's the command, you shall not do what? You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Literally anything physical that you would make Anything that looks like anything, any likeness of anything in heaven or on the earth or anything in the ocean, anything. Does this mean that art is forbidden? Are we not allowed to create paintings of sunrises? Should we discipline our children when they make pictures of little kitty cats and bunny rabbits? What about that giant buck that we shot last weekend and we put it up on the wall of our man cave? Is that, are, we, are we violating the second commandment there? I was way out of my comfort zone there, but I got through that one pretty good. (laughs) This this is not what this means. We are free to create art. We are free to appreciate God's creation. We know this from the first three rules of biblical interpretation, which are context, context, and the third one I always get wrong. Oh, yeah, context. It's all about context. Verse 5 tells us plainly what the prohibition is. You shall not use these things in worship. He said, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And so, if you remember from last week, I'm trying to break this up into manageable chunks for us in this series. The first chunk, explanation. What is forbidden and what is commanded right in the words that he is telling us. And the second chunk, application. Okay, how do we obey it? How do we violate it? So hopefully just the first Uh, Verses 4 through 6, you see clearly what is forbidden by the second commandment. We are forbidden from making any images of anything, God, the Holy Spirit, angels, animals, sunsets, mountains, eagles, bears, dogs, cats, people, whatever, fish, and use either worshiping them or using them as an aid for us to worship. Let's say it like this for the first point. We are commanded to worship God without the use of idols or images. We are commanded to worship God without the use of idols or images. Some of you are like, cool, got it, thanks. Can we go to lunch now? No, you can't go to lunch now because it's not that easy yet. Remember, this is more about what? It's not, it's not so much the object of our worship that was last week. The second commandment is about the manner of our worship, how we worship God himself. We don't and we can't possibly make any image that accurately represents the Lord our God. It is impossible. We would dishonor him if we tried to do that. 
John Calvin puts it bluntly, he calls us entirely away from the carnal, frivolous observances which our stupid minds are wont to devise after, forming some gross idea of the divine nature, while at the same time he instructs us in the worship, which is legitimate, namely spiritual worship of his own appointment. See what Calvin's saying there? God tells us how he wants to be worshipped and how not to worship him. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, writes... In its Christian application, us, right? This is us. This means that we are not to make use of visual or pictorial representations of the triune God or any person of the Trinity for the purposes of Christian worship. There's a bigger reason why this is important to us today. It's not because only given half a chance, we are definitely going to drift into unacceptable worship of our God, but God takes this extremely seriously. And as you see in our text, he follows up this commandment with a very, very stern warning. Look, look back at verse 5 again. So shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, or the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. Why is this important to God? Because he's a jealous God. Jealousy in its purest form is a good thing. If you are married, you should be jealous of your spouse giving affection or love or devotion to someone else. If you were to walk downstairs and say, I'm going out, I have a date. Should you live through the next five minutes, <laughs> your spouse is going to be legitimately jealous and she would be. Why? Because it's an exclusive covenant relationship. There's no one else in that relationship. It's you and your spouse. That's it. Same thing with God. We are in an exclusive covenant relationship with God. And we only give worship to God. So God is a jealous God. We do the same thing with God. We make a promise to worship him and him alone. Look at the way he says it in the text. He says, I am the Lord, your God. This is personal. I'm the Lord, your God, your one and only. Again, repeated from verse 2. Biblically speaking, idolatry is spiritual adultery. Puritan Thomas Watson says, let us give God no cause to be jealous. Let's give God no cause to be jealous. If we substitute an image of him and we worship the image, then we're really not worshiping him, are we? We're worshiping that image. And God is so serious about this that he gives us a warning. He says, I'm the Lord your God. I'm jealous. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Yikes. Really? The third and fourth generations? If you know your Bibles, a very common kind of retort to this is like, well, hold on there. I know Jeremiah 31.30 says that each one will die for his own sin. And I know Ezekiel 18.20 tells us the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So it's like, whoa, hold on here. Biblical contradiction. God says that the soul who sins, it's, it's your fault if you sin, not your sons or your third and fourth generation sons. It's not a contradiction. Two reasons. First, we're not talking about eternal judgment here. We're talking about the consequences of sin. 
We're talking about punishment, the consequences of sin and idolatry. Natural punishments and the consequences from idolatry, right? It's the old play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Like, if you're going to make these decisions to worship other gods, you will feel that. And you'll feel it so much that you'll feel it in the third and fourth generations of your family. Why? Pay attention to the text back in Exodus 20. What does it say? To those who hate me. This is what he equates, this is how serious he's about this. So if your father hates God and raises you in a home where God is hated, don't you think it's a really good chance that you are going to grow up and hate God yourself? And you're going to train your kids to hate God? That's exactly what's going to happen. They will end up bearing the consequences of their own sin. As Kevin DeYoung puts it, the children will share in their father's punishment because they share in their father's sins. They do the same thing. You know, psychological preconditioning, whatever, all of that stuff, right? Nobody's off the hook here, but they're going to probably be raised in that. And side note, look at the flip side. What a blessing to be raised in a Christian home. What a blessing to be raised in a Christian home and a Christian family. But this flows into the second reason why this is not a contradiction, because God's not saying anything in here about repentance. If you repent, he will forgive you. If you're looking at your father and you say, I don't want to end up like that guy with all of the negative consequences from from hating God, and you come to an understanding of your need for God, and you repent, he will forgive you. That's reassuring. This isn't a fate of just someone who makes an image of something and then worships it, and now your grandkids and your great-great-grandkids and your great-great, they're doomed forever. No. Just like the soul who sins shall die, the soul who repents shall live. You've got to remember that. One of the ideas here is that the children of those who reject God should see the punishment of God, and they should wake up. They should say, I don't want to live like that. I don't want that punishment. I don't want to live a life that's hating God. I want to live a life that's loving God. And so what is forbidden and what is commanded? We are commanded to worship God without the use of idols or images. And he gives us a very scary warning if we do. And he also gives us a promise of blessing, which I will get to. But first, let's move into application. How on earth do we obey this and violate this in 2023? Who can do this? Let me try to give you a point, and then I'll unpack it. I'll say this. Keeping the second commandment requires a focus on faithfulness. Keeping the second commandment requires a focus on faithfulness. So how do we violate this? Of course, there's some overlap here with the first commandment, right? God says, do not worship other gods. Okay, there is some overlap here. So if you make an idol and you worship it, you violated two commandments, So we don't worship anything else. We don't create a statue, even a statue of one that we might think is God himself. Remember Israel, Exodus, or Genesis, what is it, Exodus, yeah. We talked about the golden calf, right? That was Yahweh. They made a statue of God. They thought they were worshiping God himself. Don't do that. That's that's what God says point blank. That's how you violate this. But we also violate this if we use images and idols as a way, as an aid of worshiping God. Author Philip Ryken says this plainly, we do not make God. He made us. If God is the creator and giver of life, then he cannot be squeezed into some man-made idol. It's impossible. We can never make anything that accurately represents who God is. 
It's impossible for us to do, and we shall not try. This is one of the biggest sticking points in the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers took this, and I would say accurately, to say that the Catholic Church is wrong and sinful to use idols and images of Jesus Christ in worship. Worse yet, images of the apostles or Mary or any other saint and worship them. They draw a fine line that says, well, we're not worshiping them, we're venerating them. "Mm, But are you? You're praying to them. You're worshiping them. In fact, they are still wrong. They still violate this commandment. It's it's why as Protestants, we have an empty cross. Why as Protestants, when we have crosses in our churches, we don't have Jesus hanging on them. Number one, because he's not there anymore. Number two, because that's an idol. That's, That's an image of the invisible God. And we shall not do that. This goes so far in Roman Catholic theology that if you compare the Ten Commandments from Exodus, which we're looking at right now, and you compare the official Ten Commandments from the Catholic Church, you will not find the Second Commandment. They took it out. They say it's part of the First Commandment. But if it's part of the First Commandment in their official Ten Commandments, they leave that part off. I don't understand. It still doesn't make sense to me. Then they have a math problem because it's the Ten Commandments. So then they split the, t- the, the last two commandments. Do not covet your uh, neighbor's wife and then do, do not covet all your other stuff. So let's split that into two to make it a nice even ten commandments. Right? But, but what they're really doing is protecting their worship of saints, their worship of Jesus on the cross, their worship of images and idols on stained glass windows, all of that. If you ever go to Israel, and I really hope you do, you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It is beautiful, but it's tragic. People lined up, literally, for a mile to get into a place where they think Jesus may have laid his head so that they can touch it. They think maybe where this is a place where Jesus died so that they can touch that. They come in, come in with bags of souvenirs of trinkets, and they rub them on the holy rocks and the holy relics to try and get some of the spiritual power. It's idolatry. It breaks the second commandment. It's just keeping of traditions of worshiping God by idols and images and statues and paintings and stained glass, and it's all sin. It's all a violation of this commandment. We break this commandment if we create an image, an idol, a statue, or any part of the three-in-one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It is a complete lack of faithfulness to this commandment. And so we keep this commandment by focusing on faithfulness. So some of you are thinking, um, okay, what about the pictures of Jesus in our storybooks? What about the pictures of Jesus that we use in Kingdom Kids? Or what about the images of Jesus with the super cool 80s hair flowing back feathered with the lamb on his shoulders, you know, and blue eyes and perfect skin? That's exactly why we don't do that. Any image of any part of the Trinity is a slippery slope and we should avoid it. I'm not saying if you have a book in your house with a picture of Jesus in it, you should burn it. But I'm saying we should think about these things. Any images of any one of the Godhead, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit is a slippery slope and we should avoid it, even with kids. Why? Because we all have that picture of Jesus burned in our mind. That must be what Jesus looks like. The New Testament purposely doesn't tell us what Jesus looks like. He's God. 
I hope it even makes you think twice about the things we watch on TV, like The Chosen. Because not only do we see an image of God on the screen, we see a dramatic interpretation and dramatic license with Scripture of what this image of God in the flesh does and goes and where he goes and what he says. And if you're, if you're taken aback by any of this, think about it. What's the danger? We might hold Jesus a little too highly. That's what we're talking about here. It's so ingrained in us that we think about it like, I don't know. I don't know. Why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't we want to obey this and hold the image of God as high as we possibly can and set that aside for the holy of holies? This is so much bigger than just pictures of Jesus. It impacts the whole way, the whole way that we do church. And a violation of this commandment is all over the place in the name of evangelical Christianity today. And again, what do we see? We see a lack of faithfulness. And I'll say in the evangelical church today, we see a lack of faithfulness directed at, oh, but we're fruitful. A focus on fruitfulness instead of faithfulness. But what fruit are we talking about? Remember how I said our hearts will quickly gravitate towards inventing our own ways of worshiping God? One author writes, when a man has little ap- ap- appreciation of this truth, he may feel that he can invent something that will add value to Christian worship. We see this all over the place. There are inherent dangers of just letting ourselves add whatever we feel like in worship. This, I'm gonna, the worship team didn't tell him I was going to do this, but the worship team, of course, was messing around before service, right? And they were playing a secular song before service, and somebody said they should open with that, and I said, not today. <laughs> they, they, that is the wrong Sunday to do that, that's for sure. They do not want to do that, right? Why? But it was just like, that would be great. Churches do that. Big, giant churches with multi-million dollar light shows and video walls start their service with secular rock songs. Why? Because people love it. Whoa, hold on. We're violating the second commandment here. Elaborate Christmas productions with drummers flying through the air on zip lines. I know you've seen that on Instagram. Crazy high-end production, multi-million dollar lighting, complete with a motivational self-help message designed to tickle the ears of customers. I mean worshipers. We see it in churches canceling worship on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Why? Because nobody's going to come. It's the Lord's Day. Hmm, yeah, but they'll be tired. A lack of faithfulness with a focus on what? Perceived fruitfulness. Obeying this commandment requires a focus on faithfulness. I hope this is becoming clear that this might be the most widely violated command in the church today. We violate this command when we worship God in a way that he hasn't told us to. And I'll give you three more, po- three more points of application of how we violate this. And I stole them and adapted them from another author. First, we make an idol whenever we worship an image rather than listening to the word. Are we looking to be entertained when we come to church rather than challenged and edified? How many laser lights do we actually need? for the preaching of God's word and the singing of songs. This even affects how we come to church on the Lord's day. Are we walking in here understanding what this is? Are we thinking about it the day before, preparing for it? Do we understand the weight and the gravity of coming together with the people of God and worshiping him in his church? Are we ready emotionally, physically, spiritually to hear from God's word 
to let the Spirit work through the words of the song and, of course, the fellowship of the saints and primarily through His Holy Word? Are we, are we worshiping an image rather than just listening to the Word? Second, we make an idol whenever we turn God into something that we can manipulate. People are always looking for a more user-friendly God. A God who could be adapted to suit their purposes. If I go to church, if I sing the songs, if I put the money in the plate, then God will bless me. That's not the God of the Bible. Third, we make an idol whenever we choose to worship God for some of his attributes and not others. When people say, I like to think of a God like run away. <laughs> go get your Bible and then go back to talk to them. We don't get to do that. This is how God has revealed himself. When somebody says, I like to think of God as love. Okay. But he has a lot to say about wrath. So you can't just focus on one of his attributes and not the other part of his attributes. It's a violation of the second commandment when we focus on some of his attributes and not all of his attributes. Again, Philip Ryken writes, we are tempted to worship God for the way that we want him to be, not the way he actually is. The evangelical church at large today, we see this theological squishiness. We see people making God into a therapist or a self-help coach. We see celebrity pastors who are disqualified from ministry go to another state, pack up, and start another church. We see a lack of biblical literacy and understanding. We see a near-complete blindness to church history and the creeds and the confessions and the catechisms. We see a rampant lack of faithfulness in biblical worship in the church today. We see celebrity values or celebrity pastors completely capitulate to the secularist and the postmodern agenda like Andy Stanley this did, did this week again. We see the mainline church abandon God's word altogether and pander to the world. What will get the people in here? How can we attract them? How do we reach the seekers? Right? All right, I know I'm on a bit of a tear, okay? This, I get fired up by this stuff, but please, please, this is what I want to... Don't hear this. Don't hear me saying that if everybody just did what Highlands did, they would be good. Because Highlands has it right. Please don't hear me say that. Because that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we have the, the uh, monopoly on how we're supposed to worship the one true God. But I am saying we try our best to be faithful. Which brings us to that final bit of application. Then how do we be faithful? How do we obey this commandment? How do we focus on faithfulness? How do we do this? Three ways. Let's focus on what is revealed. Let's focus on what is revered. And let's focus on what is repeated. First, we focus on what is revealed. Let's see. Where, oh where, has God revealed himself and all of his attributes and how he wants to be worshipped? There is only some way that we had Something in writing preserved for us for thousands of years that we could reference. Maybe even on our phones, right? We still have people groups that don't have a Bible. And I think I have between my iPad, my iPhone, and my pocket, and this probably 19 of them. This is where he's revealed himself. This is where he tells us who he is. This is where he tells us who we are and how we should approach him. This is how he tells us how he is to be worshipped. God's word is where he has revealed who he is 
and how he wants to be worshipped. The Westminster Catechism, I went the whole sermon without quoting it so far, but here it is. Question 50 says this, what is required in the second commandment? Second commandment requireth, you got to say it like that, requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinance as God hath appointed in his word. That's how we know how God wants to be worshipped. We observe and we keep pure what we see revealed in his word. To get completely nerdy here at the risk of losing everybody, this is the normative principle of worship and the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship means this regulates how we worship God. And so what do we see in worship? We see the church set up. We see elders. We see deacons. We see the preaching of the word. We see singing of songs. We see the celebrating of the ordinances and the sacraments and baptism and the Lord's Supper. We see church discipline. We see acts of service. We see reading the scripture and when church is gathered together on the Lord's Day. Those are all the things that should regulate how we do worship. A brief pause to get nerdy once more again. The London Baptist Confession, 1689, says it this way. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and the devices of men, nor suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in his holy word. They were pretty smart in 1689. So that's what we do. We pray, we sing the Psalms, we read the word, we preach the word, we fellowship together, we have all of those things that we see in the Lord's day and we come together in the Lord's word and we come together on the Lord's day to worship even if it's on Christmas or New Year's day. Okay, that's the last time I'm going to talk about that. There are some flexibilities. Now you might be thinking, okay, well there's not acoustic guitars and drums in worship, so how regulative are we going to be here? Right? We have to have some flexibility, right? As far as cultural context, right? Ron tried. He looked for harps and lutes that were in the Psalms to play them, and they're, they're all out of harps and lutes. Or, or maybe we could think about doing that. So we have acoustic guitar. We have, we have things that are, are kind of uh, culturally invisible. People walk in there and they see guitars and drums and other things. They're not really going to think anything of it because those things are commonplace in our world, right? We don't just sing the psalms, but we sing songs. Why? We're very, very picky about the songs that we sing. Why? Because with the, they have to agree with this. No Jesus is my boyfriend songs, right? They have to agree with this. That's why we do, because we, 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 we exhort one another. We, we, we understand, we encourage one another, these things from God's word. There are some flexibilities. The scripture is not going to be completely clear on every exact detail, right? We use modern instruments, right? We sing songs that are rooted in, in solid doctrine and scripture. But for everything else overarching, we're not going to stray too far away from the word of God. We're not going to have drummers coming in on zip lines. We're not going to have a video wall. We're not going to have a multi-million dollar light show. Why? Because, well, we don't think that's a faithful use of God's money, number one. And number two, what are we really, is it about the show? Or is it about the God? It's about God. The other way of looking at worship is where most of the evangelical squishy church has descended into is the normative principle, which is a lot more loosey-goosey. Well, anything that's not actually prohibited, I mean, I can't find it anywhere in here that you shouldn't 
let your drummer uh, uh, come in on a zip line, so I, I think we're good. Let's do it. Right? That, that's not what we're talking about. We, we don't want to go down that path. This is how you get the dumpster fire that we have right now in the modern evangelical non-denominational megachurch happening right now. Secular songs, again, used in worship because they're crowd pleasers. Sermons given by more of a stand-up comedian who focuses less on the Bible on more on laughs and self-help. Music is so highly produced in such a performance instead of the gathered church singing and edifying one another with the words of Scripture. I could go on. Now, how do we focus on faithfulness and obeying the second commandment? We focus on what is revealed in his word. But we also focus on what is revered. To, to revere something means to hold it in the highest honor, right? And so when we come to church, that's a big deal. It should be our favorite day of the week. And we have lost our reverence in the church today. And there's a tipping point here, right? When you walk through the gates of, oh, the gates, the barn doors of Highlands Bible Church, right? It's not like you're entering this new holy dimension, right? It's not like you have to take your shoes off and, you know, God is, it's a room. It used to be an Episcopal church, right? We have, we make it holy by the Holy Spirit being here in the hearts and minds of the church of Jesus Christ, right? That's why. So there, so there is a tipping point to that. But there needs to be more reverence in our worship. There needs to be an idea that we are coming, we are gathering together to worship our creator and king. Do we feel the weight of gathering together to worship God at his church? Do we have that reverence for the power of God and how we're his creatures and he is our creator? Do we come to church to get something out of it or to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? So we focus on faithfulness for what is revealed in God's word. We focus on faithfulness by what is revered, but also what is repeated. I follow some fitness people on the social medias, right? One of the guys, this ex-Navy SEAL, whom I love deeply with a man sort of love, and he says, listen, he gets up every morning at 4.30 in the morning, and he takes a picture of his watch, and he puts it on Twitter, and he'll have people going, how do you do that? How do you just get up at 4.30 in the morning? I think he waits all day for people to ask that question because he says, you know what, I'll tell you. I'll tell you, here's the secret. You just get up at 4.30 in the morning. That's all you do. You get your lazy rear end out of bed. But I don't want to. Aha. That's the reason why you're not getting up. Want has nothing to do with it. Motivation has nothing to do with it. Right? We do what we do. We repeat what we do because that's what we're called to do. And the same thing, there's a parallel to spiritual growth and the spiritual disciplines. Why do we go to church each and every Sunday? Because we want to repeat being with the family of God. We want to grow in his graces. Why do we get up every morning, day in, day out, read the word? I'm going to read it tomorrow too. I'm going to read it the next day. I'm going to pray the next day. I'm going to kill sin the next day. We repeat it over and over and over again. And that's how we show faithfulness to God. This is not, I'm trying to win favors here from God by doing things. Look at God, I nailed it. Like seven out of seven quiet times this week. I'm killing it. That's manipulating God. Go back to what we were talking about before. We don't want to do that either. But we focus on what is repeated. 
Somehow along the way, we have caved into the psychological and therapeutic self, which requires us to want something, to want to do something before we actually do it. Our great-grandfathers and grandmothers would have no idea what that's like. They just went up and got, they got up and went to work, right? If you ask them if they were fulfilled in their job, they wouldn't understand the question. I don't know. I work. They give me money. I buy food. That's it. Right? Hopefully I'm a witness where I am for the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've lost that. We've lost our work ethic. We've lost our pursuit of the spiritual disciplines. Why? Again, not to curry God's favor. But because that's how we be faithful. We do the same thing day in and day out. We fight sin. We read his word. We grow. We fellowship. This is not Nike, just do it Christianity. Please don't hear that. This is faithfulness. Day in and day out. God created us to work and to work hard in our jobs, but also in our pursuit of maturity of the faith. We're faithful in how we worship God day in and day out. What does faithfulness to the second commandment look like? It looks like focusing on what is revealed, what is revered, and what is repeated. Again, the Lord's Day should be the highlight of our week. Sunday should be our favorite day. Being with God's people, singing his words, getting encouragement, edification, being challenged. It's designed by God that way for the spiritual pit stop before you start the week. So you're fulfilled. So you go into the week full of God's grace. The spiritual disciplines, the public and private means of growing in grace must be repeated. So yes, we come to church every Sunday, even when we don't feel like it. I had a waitress next door ask me that. She goes, I got a question for you. Do you ever feel like not on a Sunday? <laughs> uh... <laughs> yeah. Her, which is why I spend the first half hour of my day on my face before God, praying that he would use a weak sinner like myself who doesn't want to get out of bed. That's what we got to do, church. We've got to be faithful, faithful on the Lord's day. The spiritual disciplines, again, do we think about it? The first, next week, Sunday, what's happening? Communion, the Lord's Supper. Are we excited about that? Do we understand what that means? It is next Sunday, right? February 1st. And here we've come to the big why. Why? Why do we do any of this? Why are we faithful? Why? And again, I'm going to bring it back to loving God. Because that's how Jesus summarized the first table of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so every week, I'm going to come back to that. What does loving God mean in the second commandment? Here's the big idea. Loving God means worshiping him biblically. Loving God means worshiping him biblically. By and large, church, we've lost sight of the second commandment. Not us, necessarily. I don't want to take that personally. But by and large, let's continue to be different, church. It's one of the things I love to hear about people when they come in here. There's just something different about Highlands. Please, let's continue to be different. It looks weird to everybody else. Let's stay weird, right? Let's stay different. Let's continue to focus on faithfulness. Let's continue to run with perseverance in the path of God's command. Why? Because we love him and he set our hearts free. 
The second commandment tells us that loving God means worshiping him biblically. Why? Because we love him. Why else? Well, remember that promise in verse 6? Y'all thought I forgot about that, didn't you? I had a plan. Verse 6 of Exodus 20. Why? Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Hebrew here most likely means thousands of generations. Fathers, how would it be to have thousands of our future generations being faithful to God? That'd be so awesome. That's what we're going for here, and that's what he's telling us to do. Don't we want God's blessings for thousands of generations of believers? How do we get it? What does the text say? Who gets the blessings of God? Those that do what? Love me and keep my commandments. There it is. He tells us that. Love me and keep my commandments. Not worshiping him any old way that comes to mind, but the way that he tells us in here. Not like Nadab and Abihu, right? What's the first step in loving God? Stop trying to remake God in our own image. Stop trying to manipulate God. Stop rejecting God. Come to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first step. If you've not done that today, why not today? Turn to him in repentance and faith. One author writes, rather than remaking God into our image, we need to be remade into his image. God does that by bringing us into a personal saving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. That's where that happens. He remakes us into the image of God. When we turn, we repent of our, of our worship of self and worship the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father, his perfect image. We don't need idols and images in worship. We need Jesus. So if you haven't done that already, that's the first step. You can't worship God any other way except Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. But for church, for us, those who profess faith, how is our focus on faithfulness? How are we doing focusing on worshiping God through what he's revealed in here? Do we know what is revealed in here? What sort of reverence do we have in our hearts for God, for his people, for his church, for his ordinances, for his word? Are we doing the hard work day in and day out of faithfulness, focusing on repeating how we know that we need to grow? There's no other ways. There's no secret. I can't give you any other ways to grow except the, the common elements of grace, God's word, prayer, spiritual disciplines, all of that. And we do them day in and day out so that we grow and we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are we dedicating ourselves to the task of spiritual growth? Let's stop trying to reinvent God into our image and let him renew our image. Why? Because again, it's about loving God with all that we have, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving God, according to the second commandment, means worshiping him biblically. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word. This, this text from the book of Exodus so many years ago, Lord, still reflects your character, still reflects who you are. Lord, help us to be faithful. Of course, in public gathered worship here, help us to be faithful. Let us cling to the word that is preached, the word that is read, the word that is sung, the word that is prayed. Let us revere you, Lord, 
But let us also be faithful in doing the work that you've called us to, to repeat day in and day out a walk of faithfulness. And Father, would you do as you have promised? Would you richly bless us with your steadfast love to thousands of generations? May people proclaim the creator and king through his son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in that mighty name. Amen.